0: The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 2, The Constitution, Book 1, The Feast of Pikes, Chapter 6, Je le Jure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan, Book 1, Chapter 6, Je le Jure. With these signs of the times, is it not surprising that the dominant feeling all over France was still continually hope? O blessed hope, sole boon of man, whereby on his straight prison walls are painted beautiful, far-stretching landscapes, and into the night of very death is shed holiest dawn. Thou art to all an indefeasible possession in this God's world. To the wise a sacred Constantine's banner, written on the eternal skies, under which they shall conquer, for the battle itself is victory. To the foolish some secular mirage or shadow of still waters painted on the parched earth whereby at least their dusty pilgrimage if devious becomes cheerfuller becomes possible in the death tumults of a sinking society french hope sees only the birth struggles of a new unspeakably better society and sings with full assurance of faith her brisk melody which some inspired fiddler has in these very days composed for her, the world-famous Sa-Ira, yes, that will go, and then there will come. All men hope, even Marat hopes, that patriotism will take muff and dirk. King Louis is not without hope in the chapter of chances, in a flight to some Sambouillet, in getting popularised at Paris. But what a hoping people he had, judged by the fact and series of facts, now to be noted. Poor Louis, meaning the best, with little insight and even less determination of his own, has to follow in that dim wayfaring of his such signal as may be given him by Backstairs Royalism, by official or Backstairs Constitutionalism, whichever for the month may have convinced the royal mind. If, flight like to Bouillet, and, horrible to think, a drawing of the civil sword do hang, as theory, portentous in the background, much nearer is this fact of these twelve hundred kings who sit in the Salle des Ménages. Kings uncontrollable by him, not yet irreverent to him. Could kind management of these but prosper, how much better were it than armed emigrants, Turin intrigues, and the help of Austria? Nay, are the two hopes inconsistent? Rides in the suburbs, we have found, cost little, yet they always brought vivats. Still cheaper is a soft word, such as has many times turned away wrath. In these rapid days, while France is all getting divided into departments, clergy about to be remodelled, popular societies rising, and feudalism and so much ever is ready to be hurled into the melting pot, might one not try... On the 4th of February, accordingly, Monsieur le President reads to his National Assembly a short autograph, announcing that His Majesty will step over, quite in an unceremonious way, probably about noon. Think, therefore, Messieurs, what it may mean, especially how you will get the whole decorated a little. The Secretary's bureau can be shifted down from the platform. On the President's chair be slipped this cover of velvet, of a violet cover sprigged with gold fleur-de-lis. For indeed Monsieur le President has had previous notice underhand and taken counsel with Dr Guillotine. Then some fraction of velvet carpet of like texture and colour, cannot that be spread in front of the chair where the secretaries usually sit? So has judicious Guillotine advised, and the effect is found satisfactory. Moreover, as it is probable that His Majesty, in spite of the fleur-de-lis velvet, will stand and not sit at all, the President himself, in the interim, presides standing. And so, while some Honourable Member is discussing, say, the division of a department, ushers announce His Majesty. In person, with small suite, enters Majesty. The Honourable Member stops short. The assembly starts to its feet, the 1200 kings, almost all, and the galleries no less, do welcome the restorer of French liberty with loyal shouts. His Majesty's speech in diluted conventional phraseology expresses this, mainly, that he, most of all Frenchmen, rejoices to see France getting regenerated, is sure at the same time that they will deal gently with her in the process and not regenerate her roughly. Such was his majesty's speech. The feat he performed was coming to speak it, and going back again. Surely, except to a very hoping people, there was not much here to build upon. Yet what did they not build? The fact that the king has spoken, that he has voluntarily come to speak, how inexpressibly encouraging! Did not the glance of his royal countenance, like concentrated sunbeams, kindle all hearts in an august assembly, nay, thereby in an inflammable enthusiastic France? To move deputation of thanks can be the happy lot of but one man, to go in such deputation the lot of not many. The deputed have gone, and returned with what highest-flown compliment they could, whom also the Queen met, Dauphin in hand and still do not our hearts burn with insatiable gratitude, and to one other man a still higher blessedness suggests itself, to move that we all renew the national oath. Happiest honourable member, with his word so in season as word seldom was, magic Fugelman of a whole national assembly, which sat there bursting to do somewhat, Fugelman of a whole onlooking France, The President swears, declares that everyone shall swear, in distinct je le jure. Nay, the very gallery sends him down a written slip signed with their oath on it, and as the Assembly now casts an eye that way, the gallery all stands up and swears again. And then, out of doors, consider at the Hôtel de Ville, a the great tennis-court swearer, again swears towards nightfall, with all the municipals and heads of districts assembled there. And Monsieur Danton suggests that the public would like to partake. Whereupon Bailly, with escort of twelve, steps forth to the great outer staircase, sways the ebullient multitude with stretched hand, takes their oaths with a thunder of rolling drums, with shouts that rend the welkin. And on all streets the glad people, with moisture and fire in their eyes, spontaneously formed groups and swore one another. And the whole city was illuminated. This was the 4th of February, 1790, a day to be marked white in constitutional annals. Nor is the illumination for a night only, but partially or totally it lasts a series of nights. For each district, the electors of each district will swear specially, and always as the district swears, it illuminates itself. Behold them, district after district, in some open square, where the non-electing people can all see and join, with their uplifted right hands, and je le jour, with rolling drums, with embracings, and that infinite hurrah of the enfranchised, which any tyrant that there may be can consider. Faithful to the King, to the Law, to the Constitution which the National Assembly shall make. Fancy, for example, the professors of universities parading the streets with the young France and swearing in an enthusiastic manner, not without tumult. By a larger exercise of fancy, expand duly this little word. The like was repeated in every town and district of France. Nay, one patriot mother in Lignon of Brittany assembles her ten children and with her own aged hand swears them all herself, the high-souled, venerable woman of all which, moreover, a national assembly must be eloquently apprised. Such three weeks of swearing saw the sun ever such a swearing people. Have they been bit by a swearing tarantula? No, but they are men and Frenchmen. They have hope, and singular to say, they have faith, were it only in the gospel according to Jean-Jacques. Oh my brothers, would to heaven it were even as ye think and have sworn, But there are lover's oaths, which, had they been true as love itself, cannot be kept, not to speak of dice's oaths, also a known sort. End of Book One, Chapter Six